think we can dismiss our younger children to children's church. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline, says the timing of Christ on it. We're in John 11, racing through the Gospel of John. John 11, verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to one of those passages that's hard to understand, that often we don't get it the first time we read it. And so we ask that your Spirit would work this morning, open our eyes that we might understand, open our hearts that we might hear. Father, we pray that you would work in us now with your Word what you desire. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Rich gave you a rapid-fire history lesson in the prayer time this morning, so we're going back in history for our opening uh, this morning, because much of today's passage has to do with the subject of waiting. And uh, before we get to our passage in John 11, let's first take a look at someone else who is good at waiting. That person, of course, was Abraham. Now, if you don't know your Bible, you can't appreciate the extent to which Abraham and his wife Sarah trusted God. The two of them had been married for years. Uh, We don't know how old they were when they got married, but at this point, she was 65 and he was 75. 
And if you can believe this, God said to Abraham that in the latter years of his life, his wife was going to have a baby. Now think about the folks you know that are 75 and 65. Think of them now as parents of newborns. But God promised Abraham in no uncertain terms. He swore on the basis of his own integrity that Sarah would have a son. Then after making that firm promise, God said, you're going to have to trust me. Wait. Abraham waited a year and nothing happened. By then, Sarah had turned 66. He waited another 10 years. By that time, she was 76. Nothing happened. He waited another 10 years. 86. Nothing happened. And then when Abraham is nearing his 100th birthday, which means that Sarah's about 90 years old, God came back and said, I'm here again. Guess what? You're still going to have that baby. It's been 25 years since God first made that promise to Abraham. And when you stop and consider all the time that's passed, you gain a whole new appreciation for God's faithfulness and God's consistency. And it's a wonderful story because it shows us how trustworthy God is in the waiting period. We'll pick up the story in Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. We pick up the story again in the next chapter in Genesis 18. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? They were told to name the baby Isaac. And Isaac means laughter in Hebrew. And God is telling them something along the lines of, you laugh at me, I'll laugh at you. I'll show you when that boy is born that I keep my word. And Abraham laughed on the outside, but deep down on the inside, he was confident God could do whatever he said and that God was faithful to his promises. Romans 4 makes that clear. Romans 4, verse, starting at verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now think about that. Abraham waited 25 years. He didn't believe it when he first heard it at 75. Now he's 100. I think at 100, you're at sort of the great-great-grandparents, right? That about right? Jerry, you're great-grandfather. Okay, so at 100, it'll be like great-great-grandfather. Yeah, he's going to become dad at 100. What was the purpose of Abraham waiting all those years? Well, it says right here, where we learn that from Romans. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He would be strengthened in his faith, and the glory would be God's. Keep that in mind as we turn to our passage this morning in John 11. First thing we see there is this picture of the Lord and his friends. And immediately we see there's a crisis here. They're facing a desperate situation. Verse 1 tells us that Lazarus is sick. He's lying in Bethany on his deathbed, gravely ill. But the Apostle John first wants us to know a little bit about Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And uh, for with them, we see there was dedication. That's the first uh, blank there, dedication. We're doing all these today. I sort of got lazy and fell into old habit, and it just happened. They... uh, But we're reminded when we're sort of reintroduced to Mary and Martha and Lazarus of that incident where Mary showed her love and dedication to the Lord. She poured perfume on his head, wiped his feet with her hair. That there's similar stories a couple times in Scripture, but one of them was this Mary. It's clear that this is a special family to Jesus. The members of this family loved Jesus. They showed it without reservation and without embarrassment. They're known for their dedication to the Lord. And I thought, what a wonderful thing to be known for. To be known for your dedication to the Lord. And so you have to ask, are you known for being dedicated to the Lord? for being his loving friend, for humbling yourself at his feet without concern for what others might think, without concern for what the gossips will say? If you're going to be dedicated to Jesus Christ, then he has to come first in your life. And if Jesus Christ is going to be first in your life, then you can't be first in your life. I don't know how many of you remember Gail Sayers, the great Hall of Fame running back for the Chicago Bears. He's one of my favorite players. It was a long time ago. And he wrote a book called I Am Third. And uh, most people haven't read the book, but many have seen the movie Brian's Song, which is based on the book about the relationship of Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo. If you ever need a really good cry, go rent that movie, because it's a tearjerker. And even though it's a sports movie about football and all, if it doesn't make you cry, you're dead. 
Um, they, uh... But in that book, he opens it, and the title comes from, he writes, The Lord comes first, my friends come second, and I am third. And I think Lazarus and his sisters would have liked Gail Sayers' book because they're the type of people who put Jesus first. They're dedicated to the Lord, and they were so dedicated to the Lord that they immediately, Lazarus gets ill, they sent word to Jesus, and they tell him, verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And so we see Jesus' response, verse 4, there's a declaration. It's the next blank. There's a declaration. Jesus says, verse 4, this illness does not lead to death, It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You ought to note a few things from this verse. First, the end is not death. As we'll see later in this chapter, the ultimate end for Lazarus here is resurrection. Just as the end for Jesus is resurrection, just as the end for each one of us who believe is resurrection. It's the great hope of the Christian faith. It's what we profess to believe. Next Sunday, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We'll recite the Apostles' Creed when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we'll all say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Well, John 11 is about that phrase. That comes out of John 11. Sure, death's a reality. Death will take place, but it doesn't get the last word. Death never has the last word because Jesus conquered death. And because Jesus conquered death, resurrection is the last word. We need to remember in the midst of our desperate situations that this does not lead to death. We need to remember that Christ has promised to raise us up with him. We need to remember that resurrection is the final reality. We also need to note here that these things happen for the glory of God that God's glory might be revealed. Lazarus is not going to be resurrected to make Lazarus famous, to glorify Lazarus, to glorify man, but to reveal God to man. So that man would have a glimpse of God's glory, God's power, God's majesty, and that these things happen so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Because God reveals himself and reveals his glory first and foremost through his Son. And it's the Son's actions that ensure that this does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. And we go on to the next verse, and we see there's devotion. There's devotion. The Son's actions need to be taken seriously. Verse 5 tells us, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Do we need to be told that? Didn't we already know that? Why does John emphasize, why does he put that sort of extra piece of information in here. It's not by accident. He wants to emphasize that. Lazarus' death and resurrection are going to happen not only to glorify the Father and the Son, but also for the good of Lazarus and his sisters because Jesus loved them unconditionally. As I said earlier, this must have been a special family to Jesus. I think this family is a special gift to Jesus. Here, there are three caring, understanding, dedicated friends. Their home was for Jesus an oasis in a hostile world, a home away from home, and he loved them dearly. 
And again, when you're in a desperate situation in the midst of a crisis event, it is absolutely crucial that you remember that Jesus loves you and that he loves you totally, completely, and unconditionally. When you're trying to run away from him, he loves you. When you're not being faithful to him, he loves you. When you're doubting and questioning him, he loves you. When you're knee-deep in sin, flat-out acting like a pagan, he loves you. Some people say Christians shouldn't get sick. Can sickness or illness or disease possibly be in the will of God? I wish Lazarus was here to answer that question. It's clear from this passage that sickness is not a sign that God doesn't love you. Not at all. God loves you when you're sick. God loves you when you're well. He loves you all the time. He loves you whether or not you love him. You can't stop the sun from shining. You can't stop the Lord from loving you. And because Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, he waited. And so we see there's a delay. There's a delay. Verse 6 says, When Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Apparently he was planning to come, but now he stays two days longer. Why? Can you imagine the reaction of Mary and Martha when they heard that Jesus isn't coming right away? Lord, the one you love is sick. We didn't ask you to sit back and pray about it. We want you to come here, right here, right now, and heal him. Why wait? Why? Why wait? Because Jesus is waiting for his Father's perfect timing. And with this passage of time, there'd be no doubt in understanding the coming miracle. Jesus' timing is regulated by his Father's will, not by the requests of friends or family. And by waiting to leave until after Lazarus had died, Jesus accomplishes two things. He will powerfully demonstrate himself to be the Lord of the resurrection. And he will powerfully establish the faith of the disciples, the faith of his friends, the faith of Lazarus' family. Jesus is constantly seeking to increase their faith. He knew that soon he would leave them. We're approaching now and Uh, John 11, we're getting close to the end. And that the disciples, his friends, Lazarus' family, they're going to get the responsibility of carrying on the ministry. And if their faith is weak, then the work could never be strong. And therefore, it's essential that they understood God's timing. And it's essential for us too. Jesus delayed because Jesus loved them. Nothing but the purest, Simplest love sways him in all that he does. When he delays, it's the delay of love. What patience would we have if we recognize that the only reason which moves God in his choice of when to fulfill our desires, when to grant our requests, when to lift away our burdens, is when it's for our own good? God always answers at the best time. He's never late. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And in the same way, our timing is not his timing. His watch is set to matters of eternal consequence, not things of the here and now. 
And if we remember that God has a purpose for all things, Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If we could remember that, then it shouldn't be difficult to understand that his delays are delays of love. But that's easier said than done, isn't it? And that's what we see here. It's easier said than done. And we see that here with the Lord and his followers. Look on down to verse 7. They immediately begin to question Jesus, what he's doing. We read next that he's made a decision. There's a decision. Verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? This was not the decision the disciples are looking for. Notice he didn't say, let us go back to Bethany, where he has friends. He said, let us go to Judea again, back to Jerusalem, where he had enemies. The disciples surely didn't want to face the confrontation they knew would come when Jesus returned to Judea. You can just hear them asking Jesus, Lord, heal Lazarus from a distance. You know, after all, you've done that before. Don't make us do this hard thing and go back to Judea. Again, i got to ask, where's your Judea? What is the hard thing God wants you to do but that you don't want to do? Maybe it's talking to your neighbor about Christ, inviting them to church. Maybe it's visiting that person you know is lonely, but who's someone who's not much fun to be around. Maybe it's setting aside a time uh, during the day to pray and study the Bible, but you don't have the time, you don't want to give up the time. Maybe it's saying no to that new thing you really want so that you can take the family out. Maybe it's making a commitment to be involved, though it's a lot easier not to be. Where is your Judea? Where is God calling you to go that you don't want to go? What is God calling you to do that you don't want to do? See, whenever Jesus makes a decision, and wherever he's clearly revealed his will to us through his word, we're faced with some choices. We can fail to follow his decision and stay in the darkness. We can reluctantly follow his decision and then complain about it the whole time, making sure that everyone knows we don't really want to be here, never realizing the joy and peace that he wants for us. Or we can faithfully follow his decision, trusting that he's in control, and as Psalm 145 says, watching over all those who love him. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Here, look at verses 9 and 10. We see there's some discussion going on. There's a discussion. He deals with their concerns. He says, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. He's letting them know that the light reveals God's will and God's presence with us. And the night shows the absence of knowing God's will and the absence of God's presence. Remember back in John 9, we read part of our uh, responsive reading this morning. There Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he's reminding them that they're safe as long as they're carrying out his Father's will, as long as it's still light, as long as his presence is still with them. It's hard to follow Christ on anything when it's night 
and you don't know what God's will is, and you don't know if Christ is with you. But when you're in the light and you know what God's will is, and you know that God's presence is with you through his spirit, then you can follow Christ even in the hard times. And Jesus is reminding us as well that we too can be involved in doing the work the Father calls us to do as long as it is still light, as long as his presence is with us, as long as we're following his will. Then Jesus tells them why he delayed his decision to go. Jump down to verse 14. We see there is a disclosure here. Verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. That's got to be a confusing verse for the disciples. And Jesus is letting the disciples know it's better that he wasn't there before Lazarus died, because he would have healed him instead of raising him from the dead. Healing him and not raising Lazarus from the dead would have robbed the world of a remarkable illustration of the truth of the resurrection. There would not have been the display of dramatic power which served to strengthen the faith of the family, to strengthen the faith of each one of us. It's better that Jesus' power over death is displayed so that everyone knows uh, that he can not only raise himself, but that he can raise all those who trust in him. He says this is done so that you may believe. Not coincidentally, the theme of the Gospel of John. Jesus wants their faith to grow. He wants their faith to be greater, to be stronger. Jesus is saying that whatever happens here will enable them to grow in faith, to believe more fully, to trust him more fully. How many of you seen the television ads about Las Vegas? Come to Las Vegas. Whatever happens here stays here. The church is exactly the opposite. Whatever happens here should not stay here. It's supposed to go out everywhere you go. You go home, it goes home. You go to work, it goes to work. You go to school, it goes to school. Wherever you go, whatever happens here goes with you. It's exactly the opposite. And Jesus has taught his disciples a great lesson here. Now that the decision's been made, even though it may be a hard one, and now that the discussion's been had, so you know the importance of the decision, and now that the disclosure's been given, so you know why the decision was made uh, when it was made, and now that you're able to see things from Jesus' perspective, let us go and carry it out. But only at the end, having gone through all of that, only after the decision's been made, but before it's implemented, we learn that there's a little danger involved. There's danger Verse 16, so Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You know, we always criticize Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas. We kind of make fun of Thomas. Thomas seems to be, you know, pretty upstanding, straightforward kind of guy right here. Sort of has that special forces mentality. Let's go die. You know, Thomas thought that if Jesus were to go back to Judea, he would die. And Thomas was right. Jesus went back, and there he died. 
But just as Mary and Martha didn't see how Lazarus' death could result in greater glory to God and a strengthened faith for them, so also the disciples can't see how Jesus' death could result in greater glory to God and a strengthened faith for them. See, the human perspective focuses on the immediate, not the ultimate, on the urgent, not the important, on our good, not God's glory. But his perspective brings eternity into the equation, changes the focus from the immediate to the ultimate, from the urgent to the important, from our good to his glory. And like Thomas, when we understand his timing and his perspective, then we'll go with him. Thomas spoke better than he knew. His words have become a trumpet call to Christians of all ages to take up their cross daily and follow Christ. Rich prayed about all those countries where after many, many years of missionaries, they finally came, started coming to Christ, and things started turning around. Think about sub-Saharan Africa. When we first sent missionaries to Africa, they took their coffins with them. They packed their belongings in their coffin because they knew they weren't coming back any other way. That's eternal perspective. Sometimes we just need to think biblically, not logically. So when you hit those hard times, and you will, when you doubt God's love, when you doubt God's purpose, when you doubt God's promise, when things haven't worked out like you hoped they would, when the bottom drops out, when your hope starts to wear thin, when you receive the no instead of a yes or a yes instead of a no, and when God tells you to wait, when human logic fails to make much sense, that sometimes God says wait and he doesn't tell you why. And I've spent some time over 15 years in ministry with people in hospital rooms trying to figure out why they were there, why their baby was there, why their spouse was there, why this bad thing happened to them. I've heard several families get told by doctors that your kid is going to die, and I've only seen one of those kids recover. And most of you who are parents would gladly give up an arm or a leg, literally, to save the life of your kid. Most of you who are kids need to know your parents would give up their life to save yours. Without hesitation, my life for yours. But most of the time in this life, you don't get that choice. And so you're left in the hospital bed, you're left crying on the living room floor, you're left walking around trying to figure it all out, you feel like you're running into a stone wall, and you've just entered God's waiting room. When you can't figure out what's happening or why, stop trying to think logically, think biblically. Remember Abraham. Remember Lazarus. When you come to that hard stone wall of why, know that the answer is who. God is in control. He knows all things. He's in charge of all things. Know that God has a purpose. Know that God has promised. Know that God still loves you. When you're able to understand his timing and his perspective, then you'll understand 
that he allows all things to happen, just as he did with Abraham, just as he did with Lazarus, to bring glory to God and to strengthen your faith so that you may believe. So that you may believe. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.